welcome to Making Tech Better, MadeTech's fortnightly podcast bringing you content from all over the world on how to improve your software delivery. For us, that means empowering your teams to collaborate compassionately on creating high-quality software that delivers value quickly to the people that really matter, the users. My name is Claire Sudbury and my pronouns are she and her. I've been a software engineer for 21 years. I do a lot of speaking and writing on the topic of software delivery, and I'm a lead engineer with Made Tech. Now, public services are under more stress than ever before. What with cuts and austerity, and on top of all of that COVID, there's pressure to modernize and keep becoming ever more efficient. Handled correctly, digital services can really help with that. So I was really interested to catch up with Kit Collingwood on the 23rd of January. She's the Assistant Director of Digital and Customer Services for the Royal Borough of Greenwich. And so we got to talk about the digital strategy that she's just published, which is all about improving software delivery for Greenwich Council. So you'll hear about all of the ways that Greenwich plan to make their infrastructure modern and interoperable via things like elastic scale in the cloud, But the thing that really stood out for me was Kit's focus on the lives of the people that live in Greenwich. Because after all, these are the people that really matter. Hello, Kit. Hi. I am going to ask you about the digital strategy. But first, you know, tell us a bit about your career thus far. How have you ended up where you are? Well, in a nutshell, uh, I was a civil servant for 10 years and I worked for the Ministry of Justice um, and I was a policymaker and I worked on some operational stuff and some legislative stuff. And after a few years, I was getting a feeling of sort of emptiness about my civil service experience and I wanted to do something different. Um, and I applied for a job in a digital transformation program. Mm-hmm. Um, this was in 2012 and it was a delivery manager job. And on my first day, my boss quit and she was head of the transformation program. Um, and I asked for her job, cheeky thing that I was. Yeah. And they were silly enough to give it to me. So I became head of a transformation program without having any idea how the internet works. Um, and that was autumn 2012. And I just haven't looked back. I just fell in love with digital. Um, and I've done various CDO, head of data, program director jobs in the public sector ever since. And then I did a short stint in a consultancy in 2020. And then the job at Royal Borough of Greenwich came up, mm-hmm. uh, which is where I live. I live in the borough, not a long walk from the office. And I'd always said if that job ever came up, CDO at Greenwich, I was going to grab onto it and go for it like a madwoman. And I did. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get it. So that's how I've ended up here. Fantastic. Yeah. And I'm glad you just said Greenwich because one of my questions was going to be, do I have to keep calling it Royal Borough of Greenwich or can I just say <laughs> Greenwich? <laughs> You can call it RBG. There are two RBGs in my life, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Royal Borough of Greenwich, and I I love them both equally. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, so I'm guessing that you, like me, would have been very sad when when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Yeah. uh, I was saddest that she never got to see the orange menace be hustled out of office and the beginning of something brighter. Uh So that's doubly sad, but uh, we do have hope now that her spirit will carry on. Absolutely. Amazing, inspirational woman. Okay, so my simple starter question that I ask everybody is, who in this industry are you inspired by? Um, uh, well, I'll go cheesy first and say my partner, Kylie. Oh. <laughs> um, she's head of product at Citizens Advice. 
I'm not from a product background, although I've, I obviously have to appreciate uh, product thinking and I do that in everything I do. But she's, you know, probably the most talented product person I've ever observed. Um, and in her passion and dedication to what she does inspire me all the time. And uh, it's unusual for me to cite a straight white man, but I've got to say Dave Rogers, who I worked with at the Ministry of Justice for a couple of years, and uh, his mind doesn't work like anybody else's I know. And he taught me so many of the valuable things I know about technology. Uh, and technology isn't my specialism, you know, in terms of deep experience. I, I don't code. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, you know, I learned a lot from him in the time I worked with him. And he's extremely kind um, and high empathy. Um, and he, you know, he, he taught me a lot personally as well as professionally. Um, and then I would probably put Cassie Robinson in that as well. Mm-hmm. Who is, she hasn't worked exclusively in tech, far from it, you know. She's sort of an indefinable person. But her brain is just a marvel, really. And the way she thinks around problems, to say that she's a lateral thinker would be underplaying, I think. You know, she just thinks like nobody else I know when her kind of creative powers are something to behold. So Fantastic. It's the triangulation of those three, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and actually, Dave is already on my list of people that I'd like to interview for the podcast. So uh, that makes me even more keen. I think that's a good show. <laughs> and uh, we will put links, if you have them, to all of these people in the description, if people want to find out more about them. So I read your blog post about the the Greenwich Digital Strategy, and there were a few times where I really noticed your kind of focus on people. So one of those was that I know that you you joined RBG in January, and then nine weeks later, COVID hit and you had to pivot. Uh, And one of the things that you you said in your blog post was that you appreciated people's entire lived experiences as a result of that. Can you tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, um, it's been a year long exercise in humility, really, leading this through the pandemic. And I'm lucky enough in Greenwich to have the widest portfolio I've ever had. So I, I own digital data technology and customer services and customer services, you know, is the rest of the whole front door of this organization and learning I was naive. I didn't know how many people went hungry in this borough, Uh, you know, how many people relied on our help to get them through when COVID hit. I didn't realise how precarious so many lives were. I think if I'd have thought about it, I would have described it like in intellectual terms, but to observe it, you know, and to have to build services that try and identify people who need to be fed and kids who need to be fed and, you know, people who need essential medicines taking and the fact that those are often the same people, you know, this kind of clustered need you know, and I'd never worked on services that were to do with real life or death stuff before. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked on universal credit, which, you know, it, that gets pretty close. But, yeah, you know, um, preventing homelessness, food, shelter, medicine, you know, it, it was closer than I'd ever been to that experience. Um, and it, my perspective has really shifted on our duty to serve those people more wisely with technology. Fantastic. Yeah. And so initially, the plan was to be working on the digital strategy, and then that was made much more difficult by COVID hitting. But eventually, you did manage to get to that. And I know that one of the work streams in the strategy is to make your infrastructure modern and interoperable. And you also said that, you know, Royal Greenwich had not historically been at the leading edge of digital among local authorities. So making infrastructure modern and interoperable sounds deceptively simple, but... I know that it isn't. So how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, um, it's probably the hardest part of what we'll have to face. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm seeking technology that never fails people. There's the, I can always see, this might sound strange, I can always see the emotion behind technology. And what people see is kind of simple infrastructure projects. If, you're, if your service uptime falls and people are getting outages and they're trying to offer services that are essential to people, 
that brings frustration and sadness. Yeah. And I don't want technology that makes people sad. So that's one of the outcomes. And then I suppose another outcome that I'm seeking there is something about data control. So I want systems to be enough within our control that we can work with the data that we get because we sit on tons of it as, as all public sector organisations do. And a modernity means something like control over what we do with our with our data. And what that means is some real basics like, you know, a, a huge concerted effort to get into the cloud. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're still majoritively physically on-prem. We're starting to shift that. We're going to invest in shifting that more quickly. Yeah. Okay, that's a lot. Mm. And um, how do you, because obviously, you know, you can have ambitious plans, but how can you start to get some confidence in them actually being realised? How do you, you know, move into the cloud and build those APIs? Well, I'm, I'm very good at thinking at the extremes. So I'm really good at thinking really big and really small. And I jump my way towards the middle. And that's my, it seems to be my working approach to almost everything I do. Mm-hmm. So the big picture is setting the ambition, which is this strategy. And the small bit is I just want to move one thing. So we're in talk with some of you know the biggest cloud providers and we will work with them to do some migration and re-engineering of existing services and we'll try it. So it's, it's only agile. There's no magic to it. I just like to get one thing done. I like to get one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you run or if you do any kind of like difficult endeavor like that. But if you're trying to train for a 10K or whatever, you know, if you do one run, you feel like you there's there's a momentum there. Yeah. So I think I don't really care what the first thing is, but doing one thing, it has um, kind of exponential gains for how people feel about how achievable these things are. Yeah. And I think the only other ingredient to that is not aiming for purity. Mm-hmm. I think so little of, there is no greenfield technology in the public sector that I know of. Almost no public sector agencies get the privilege of greenfield tech. So I, I don't aim for things to be 100% perfect. Mm-hmm. I just want to do one thing and then maybe we'll do two. And, you know, we'll just crack on that way. Yeah. Okay. And another of your work streams is talking about building digital capability. So building the digital skills of your people, which is another really common challenge in the public sector. So how do you plan to address that? Well, the bit that I didn't publish when we published this strategy was um, the investment plan that underpins it and then the people plan that underpins it. So if I describe that people plan at the moment, the team that I have Uh, There's no digital team. Mm -hmm. So we are currently incapable of delivering that strategy. Okay. Which is a motivation. (laughs) Um, We do have a small technology team. It's about 35 people. Mm -hmm. uh, Very capable of working with our existing technology. So I have to build a digital data and technology directorate from scratch. Right. Now, starting now. So that's the scale of it. Um, So that team size will, broadly speaking, treble. And then the only other thing that we're putting on top is proper professional development for those people. Because local government is, it doesn't have, as central government did when I worked there, the DDAP profession really well defined and there to support people. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll create that together as a group of CDOs. I, I mean, actually, and that does bring us on to, you know, this is a really ambitious strategy. You want to modernise your infrastructure, you want to build digital capability, but you also want to keep the council on a sustainable financial footing. So how do you do that? <laughs> Carefully is the answer. Uh-huh. Well, I mean, the challenges for councils goes obviously far wider than technology. So we in RBG are, you know, we, we have to actively try and balance our books. And we've seen other boroughs who are, you know, bankrupt, really, mm-hmm. you know, really dire financial straits and are having to bring in external management and all sorts. Um, and we have got exceptional financial stewardship where we are and we're doing OK, but we 
we're never going to be doing well because of a, a decade or more of, of cuts. Yeah. So uh, that's that's the scale of the challenge. And the way we meet that challenge is not purely digital, obviously. So there are, you know, we are, as everybody is, looking at everything from estates to, you know, the, the rising cost of social care, which is not within our control. Mm-hmm. The thing that I think digital can do is to help transform the organisation in such a way that the overall running cost is a lot lower for the future. I mean, you're absolutely right that doing all of this stuff is is really expensive, mm-hmm. you know, and there is an investment envelope there, uh, which we've agreed, which is big. And the way that I've projected that is for the, that investment envelope to, broadly speaking, pay for itself within four years, within the lifetime of the strategy. Okay, yeah. But what we'll come out with after that four years is an organisation which can run, you know, a lot more efficiently. Um, and then if I just name some of the ways that that can happen, so... Online services allowing residents to do more things themselves. So that can be, well, I mean, it could mean a lot of things, but for example, uh, transactional services that happen without human intervention. Reducing failure demand on our various front door channels and services. So um, things like really great notification patterns can help to do that. So, So people understand what's going on. They don't need to check back in with us. Yeah. There are contract costs which we can reduce um, through the you know the way of approaching the market that I just talked about. Um, some elements of our infrastructure costs can also reduce um, things like you know if you move from an on-prem to a cloud-hosted service, uh, if that cloud-hosted service has got elastic scaling, then you're only paying for the infrastructure you use. You know, that's a, a classic way of making infrastructure savings. And then there's a big you know the, one of the big bits is in productivity in the back office. Mm-hmm. So if we make all of our services more efficient through a combination of service design and improved technology, uh, then people can do far more with the same workforce. So where those um, services with increased demand are happening, we shouldn't need to hire more people to, to do that. We should be able to um, help through technology for that to be kind of a sustainable workload. So there's a real, you know, that it's a portfolio of stuff um, and we need to make sure we don't overspend. So, yeah, I am extremely aware of the of the need to spend wisely and that's that's fully what we intend to do yeah okay fantastic um and another thing that i wanted to talk about actually if one of my bugbears is a tendency for people to think that ai is going to be the solution to all their problems so i loved what you said in your blog post about not focusing on show-off technology and futuristic promises can you tell me a bit more about that <laughs> well you unfortunately you've tapped into one of my bugbears as well so i don't know if they were, i don't know if that sounded as angry as i felt when i wrote it but I mean, as I'm sure you have been, I've just been dismayed by the kind of commercial ridiculous branding and selling of AI into the public sector and blockchain, blockchain technologies. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's pretty shameful. I kind of object on multiple levels. I object on its applicability. Mm-hmm. You know, how applicable are those technologies to the vast majority of public sector experience? Absolutely not. There are some amazing, you know, the use of AI in cancer diagnosis is awe-inspiring and the combination of that and kind of nanorobotics is just incredible mm-hmm. um maybe a bit of distributed ledger for some financial stuff but really i mean it's not you know it's it's ridiculous and you know this readiness you know to to make these technologies work particularly ai you know kind of predictive analytics and um kind of machine learning stuff you need a great big sexy data presence you know clean data that you can access all the time mm-hmm. um you know and and skills on top of it that you can afford and you know how many public sector organizations have got a the infrastructure b the skills and c the leadership mm. to sniff their way through those technologies absolutely not but the real reason i really strongly object is the ethical angle to it mm-hmm. so 
I mean, I know of a public sector organisation which was giving out completely terrible laptops to its staff, like terrible, terrible laptops. They, you know, it took seven minutes to log on. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were funding a, an AI dojo or something, you know, yeah. taking money and funding these, and they're carbon hungry technologies. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of compute, a lot of storage. The The skills are expensive. It's expensive to get these experiments off the ground mm. that they could have spent. And I just think, I just think, how dare you? How dare you leave your staff with terrible tools Mm -hmm. to use when they're doing very important, very, very important national tasks. And you've got people over there, you know, sort of living it up with their, with their AI. So no, I I think there are applications, um, but the moral obligation we all have is to fix the basics and get people working with, you know, bring ourselves up to speed and then we can think about the future. The important thing is the application, isn't it? Because the problem is that if you say I want AI because I want AI, that's completely meaningless. You want it because it sounds good. You should want it because it's going to solve a real problem in an efficient and effective way, not just because it is. Exactly. And I mean, you and I have heard of the really big consultancy firms selling those kind of possibilities in to some very important people in the public sector. And it's, Mm -hmm. you know, shame on them and, and shame on the people who pay lots of money to use it when they haven't fixed the the real technology basics in their organization to keep their staff happy you know it is it's pretty i think of everything in terms of nursing posts and you know the number of nurses that could have been funded by these ridiculous experiments is is ridiculous um it's a bit of wise spending but also a bit of common sense i think yeah absolutely so let's talk about people again um so you've talked about being human driven in your blog post and about improving lives um, you know, how does all of this set about starting to improve the lives of, of the people in Greenwich? That's a lovely question. Yeah, I mean, well, I've spoken publicly about my regard for um, empathy in the public sector and how I think it's an essential skill. I've kind of I've written and spoken about that before. Um, I don't mean empathy as a woolly term, though. I mean, empathy as a series of actions. Mm. So that's a, it's kind of a cultural value, which I talk about in my team and which we'll be building on. But what it means is uh, taking the time to understand real need um, and breaking down your assumptions through that need. Things like understanding the nuance of privilege. And then what that looks like in daily life is user research and and also the gathering of quantitative data and using that to guide how we go. So the, the, the answer to your question is the way that those approaches will improve the lives of people is we'll start to build online services for them. So their experience of interacting with the council should become smoother, uh, quicker, less hassle, more joined up. So if they need us for a couple of things, we hope that they'll be able to talk to us once. Mm-hmm. So the, the experience of the services themselves will be better. We'll be offering different services. So we fully intend to use technology um, to help communities engage with each other. So I hope that that will help them feel more um, cohesive with each other in kind of local and hyper-local ways. And we're also going to have a full programme of digital inclusion and accessibility as well. So I think it would be too simplistic to say we're going to build all these online services and be fine. Well, we're going to do a spectrum of activities in the middle. So everything from doing pilots with different types of technology, so assistive technology for, to, for physically vulnerable and elderly people, to uh, piloting giving people devices and seeing what happens mm-hmm. to you know we're thinking about sort of flooding areas with wi-fi and seeing what increasing the bandwidth might do for people there's, mm. there's a lot of those kind of interventions and then one of the other things which i'm will be doing but i'm not quite sure in what guise yet 
is how do we get technology as as community assets? So what what does our physical estate look like in different parts of our borough? Um, And what technology might we implement in those places to help people share technology differently? Yeah. Um, And you can imagine, I mean, homeschooling, uh, homeschooling for kids without devices is is a classic one. And one where I always think that we could do more. I, I wish we had enough money for a laptop for every kid in the borough, and we don't. And yeah. it's a, it's just one of these little tragedies, and there are many that we see every day, and it's awful. But we we do what we can. How might we get shared assets that that benefit a group of people? Yeah. So it's a real, it's a really, really complex picture. But again, coming back to my approach, is you know, let's just do one thing. It's so easy to overthink. It's easy to overthink the scale of the challenge, and it's easy to be emotionally overwhelmed. Yeah. Um, you know, I've cried more at work in the last year than I ever have before. Oh. And that's nothing to do with my job. Yeah. I mean, it's a dream job. It's my absolute dream. It's the, it's crying that comes from observing people's pain up close. Um, and it's if just alleviating just a tiny bit would be would be good, you know. That would be good. While I've got your attention, let me tell you a bit about made tech. After 21 years in the industry, I'm pretty choosy about who I'll work for, but there's lots to love about MadeTech. We're software delivery experts with high technical standards. We work exclusively with the public sector. We have an open source employee handbook on GitHub, which I love. We have unlimited annual leave. But what I love most about MadeTech is the people. There's a real passion to make a difference and they really care for each other. Our Twitter handle is MadeTech, M-A-D-E-T-E-C-H. And if you go to madetech.com slash resources slash books, you'll find that we have a couple of free books available, Modernizing Legacy Applications in the Public Sector and Building High-Performance Agile Teams. We're currently recruiting in London, Bristol, South Wales and the North of England via our Manchester office. You can find out more about that if you go to madetech.com slash careers. If you join our mailing list, you'll get extra podcast content as well as finding out more about Made Tech. You'll find a link in the description. Okay, we're going to return to the interview with Kit now. But just to recap, before the break, we were talking about improving people's lives and the fact that Kit has cried more at work in the last year than she ever has before. So you, you kind of touched on it, but one of the things I wanted to ask about was um, digital exclusion. So, you know, often the people with the most complex needs are also the people that don't necessarily have access to devices or to Internet. Um, and, you know, how do you handle that? Uh, yeah, um, delicately and passionately, I think. Yeah, again, it's very humbling. Gone are the days of digital by default. I just, you know, I find that, again, it's easy to look back on things that we did before in the previous years and and feel changed but um you know covid is covid has changed everything it's changed everything that i feel about digital and technology and data and it's changed a lot about how i feel about humanity and politics and like mm-hmm. economics and a load of other stuff as well mm-hmm. but i think the pragmatic answer to your question is i think we'll take everything that we've learned about the ways that people can be digitally excluded and i've learned more about that you know, I've learned about the different national demographics that we have in our borough, you know, people from different backgrounds. I've learned about the language diversity. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot from our public health and community engagement teams about the different ways that you help different communities of people. You know, faith groups who rely a lot on the, you know, physical congregation, 
um, traveling communities who are completely different and, and need to be engaged with in a way that it respects their community leadership. You know, I think I would have, in very naive days, just thought that provision of technology was enough. And it's, you know, I feel really silly that I felt that way, but you can't go back in time. You can only build on what you've learned. And I think what that looks like is engaging case by case with different communities of people. Mm-hmm. So we will, you know, we'll build on universal services. We'll do all the basics, you know, all of our common services, you know, council tax, welfare, benefits, housing, health and social care. All of those services will be built in a way that you and I would understand as being good. But then we're going to be operating far more, far more actively than I ever could have anticipated in this, this grey space between physical and virtual interaction. And I think that's where I'll concentrate a lot of my intellectual efforts. The hope being that you can reach people with that combination of, you know, devices, bandwidth, training and learning, um, reduction of fear in contacting public sector agencies. You know, a lot of people are scared. Um, And then this kind of uh, augmented help, you know, how might people that we work with go into and work with those communities to help them access service provision and and how might we strip out the complexity of that Mm. so it's not it's not a simple answer to me it looks more like a series of interventions that we see where we go we measure them um, and we change them as we need to it's more of an approach than an answer if that makes sense yeah yeah that does make sense and you live in the borough of Greenwich yourself I do so how important to you is that sense of belonging and accountability oh it just makes me want to cry with happiness that I live where I work so, I mean, I suppose that one of the, I don't think you're getting at this, but just for the record, you know, having two kids, one at nursery, one at school and a physical workspace and and my home all within walkable distance mm-hmm. is a bit of a game changer for work-life balance. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, I think that, you know, the accountability point is very real. Um, one of the reasons that I'm passionate about local government and I'm now where I feel that I firmly belong professionally is because this is an inescapable reality. You know, I I can walk out. I live in one of the most deprived wards in the borough. And you can see poverty. It's just outside the door. Mm -hmm. And I have a very, very small part to play in alleviating it, but maybe I have a part to play in that. You know, there's there's nothing you could get that's much more motivating than that. Um, And we have a community centre at the bottom of this hill that I live on. And, you know, it has, as many of them have been, considered for closure. So, you know, what would that mean for this local community? How how could technology be uh, put into that if it does remain? Mm-hmm. You know, if the finances allow and it remains, what could technology do to, to help this? And then there's, there are other aspects of that as well. You know, Greenwich is, you know, as all London boroughs are, is, is diverse, you know, and diverse in terms of life chances. But also it has some really beautiful, you know, it's, it's got, you know, the Royal Park and other kind of open uh, green spaces Um, And there are people even in the borough who don't go to those Mm -hmm. places because that's not part of their. So it's it's something to do with heightened awareness. It's something to do with the realities literally outside your front window, this kind of inescapable reality. Um, But it's it's also this huge inspiration. And like if if I give you an example, somebody graffitied some anti-Semitic remarks on a wall in this borough um, last year. Uh Uh, And it was somebody called reported it to my team. We've got an overnight team, an out-of-hours team. Um, and they took the call and they got up off their seats and they went out with paint and painted over it before the police could even wow. react. Now, that's that's community action, isn't it? That's yeah. people actually caring about the environment that they live in. Yeah. 
And that is, um, you know, it still gives me shivers. And mm. it's like, it, to say that I'm proud of it is not really, I don't know. It, there's, there's some kind of unspeakable quality about the accountability that you get from doing it. Mm-hmm. Because if you didn't get off your bum and go and do it, that, you know, it's, it's going to stay that. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it, mean, it means a lot. So Kit, how on earth do you go about writing a digital strategy? <laughs> um, well, I am no pro at writing digital strategy, so I don't know if I went about it the right way. But I think uh, what I wanted was a strategy that we could fail against. Um, because I find so many strategies are kind of airy-fairy think pieces that you could mm-hmm. never really pass or fail. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted something that had enough specificity in it that we could potentially fail to do it and therefore be accountable for something. Mm-hmm. And that accountability is so important. Yeah, I really wanted something that was, you know, you'll see if, if you read it that it closely resembles a shopping list. Mm-hmm. And that's because having combined what I would consider kind of the basic ambition of transformation with the internal demand of things that people felt were needed. Um, It suggested some distinct work streams. That's why it's kind of streamed that way. Um, And underneath each of those streams, I wanted a clear structure. So each stream has got sort of a bit of a blurb and then it's got a list and then some measurables. So I'm sure a lot of people think it's a roadmap of them as a strategy, but, you know, it's, it's like that for a reason. You know, it's like that because I want it to mean something and to be something that can be followed not just as a kind of woolly ambition. Mm. And then the third thing, which is is really important, is I really wanted it to breathe. You know, I wanted it to iterate. And the approach that we'll take to that is the the why will remain. You know, the mission is not going to change. And the how will remain. So we will continue to be open. We will continue to be agile and work across boroughs and all that. But I anticipate that the what will shift, you know. um, And if you think about technology from four years ago, which is the life cycle of this strategy, we wouldn't all be using only those technologies and and have learned nothing in the meantime. So I'm going to iterate it with people and then republish it every six months with the constant of the why and the how and with some some tweaks to the what. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll see see how that goes. That's the whole idea of it being a breathing thing and it being a tool for accountability. I think it has to shift in that way. Evidence-based iteration is a good thing, in my view, mm-hmm. as long as you don't lose sight of the strategy of that horizon that that you've described. And, and I think the idea of either refusing to gather evidence that disagrees with you, I think that's terrible leadership, um, and refusing to stand behind decisions to change when you've gained that power of the humility of learning, I think that would be insane as well. And it's also a great way of wasting money mm. doing things which have proven to be terrible ideas. So hopefully with a bit of humility and some wise spending, we should be able to kind of tack through that series of decisions relatively unscathed. Yeah. Okay. So um, we've been talking for a while now. So uh, I think I'm going to move things on and I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody. So can you tell me one thing that's true about you and one thing that's untrue? Uh, I am crazy about Sudoku and I'm crazy about craft beer. Mm, okay. So how long have you been playing Sudoku? Uh, since it started appearing in the printed press. So uh, late 90s, early millennium, I think. Mm-hmm. Something like that. And how often do you do it? Uh, I do them every day. Mm-hmm. And I entered the British Championships a few times. Whoa. Okay. And got to the final. I came fifth. Mm. Uh, in one of those finals, which was very exciting. Wow. So yeah, very, I'm very passionate about Sudoku. 
Okay. So what about craft beer? Have you have you entered any craft beer competitions? <laughs> <laughs> unless unless you count drinking competitions. Uh, no, I'm very uh, picky. I only like IPA. Mm, okay. And do you have any particular types of IPA? What is it that you like about IPA? Uh, it's very fruity, um, very hoppy and quite uh, light, although the strength of them does vary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I'm into a lot of New England IPAs at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but any of them will do as long as they're not fruit flavoured, because I don't like I don't like sort of raspberry IPA and people put different flavours in yeah. them that I don't approve of. Yeah, no, I'm a big beer drinker myself as well. I will always prefer beer, but the sours, no, don't get it. It doesn't taste like beer to me. Yeah, but that goes too far. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so let's end on a high. What's the best thing that's happened to you in the last month or so? It could be either work-related or non-work-related. Uh, I'll go non-work-related and I'll sneak it in there. <laughs> I'll say Christmas morning just about within the last month. Yeah. Uh, it, it had been a bit of a year, um, an absolute dream year professionally, but with a lot of tragedy in it as well. Mm-hmm. And to get a proper break um, and to have the kids come down on Christmas morning and we'd done Santa's footprints in icing sugar and, and all of oh. that. And uh, yeah, it felt like being in another world for a day. So that was a that was a wonderful thing, making some good memories there. Yeah. Okay. So where can people find you? And do you have anything coming up that you'd like to plug? Oh, yeah. Um, so people can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kitterati, K-I-T-T-E-R-A-T-I on Twitter. And I'm there a lot. So if you at me on that, I'll definitely see it. Uh, shameless plug. Well, I mean, one shameless plug is to donate to your food bank. That's because that's, uh, that's not going away anytime soon. Um, my own shameless plug is I'm hiring. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I said earlier on, head of technology, head of delivery, head of data and head of products are all upcoming roles and they will make or break this whole strategy. So I think if you're interested in anything that I've said and that you fit the bill for one of those roles, um, watch this space and they'll be on the RPG career site and all over social media. And if you belong to an underrepresentative group, I doubly welcome your application. So please, please go for it, even if you think you're not qualified, because you never know what could happen. Fantastic. That's exciting. Hmm. It's an exciting position to be in, isn't it? To be building a team. It's a dream. It is an absolute... I've never done it to this scale with this kind of gravity of mission and the financial pressures too. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's new for me to design an entire directorate from scratch. I've never... I've built product teams from scratch and, you know, multiples of product teams, but not the whole thing, not absolutely the whole thing. Yeah. Um, And it's given, you know, it's a scale of challenge, which I never, I didn't know how hard that would be, but I can already smell how rewarding it's going to be. Lovely. Oh, I love that. It's been wonderful to talk to you, Kit. Thank you so much for giving me your time. It's been really interesting to hear all of the different things that you have to say. So thank you. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. They were the best podcast questions I've ever been asked. They were so, just thinking through your questions has actually changed my perspective on what we're doing. So it was just so thought provoking. So thanks very much for that. Yay. Well, thank you. I'm really enjoying making this podcast. Thank you ever so much for your time. That was really insightful. Thank you. I'm so glad I got to talk to Kit. And to help you digest everything that you've heard, I'm now going to try and summarise what I think the key takeaways are. So we talked about COVID and how that helped Kit to appreciate people's entire lived experiences. 
We talked about how to make infrastructure modern and interoperable by aiming for consistent uptime, by the organization having control of its own data, and by moving into the cloud from data centers. And in terms of moving into the cloud, we talked about thinking really big and really small and taking one thing at a time and not aiming for purity. We talked about building digital capability. We talked about Kit's plans to build a new team and she is recruiting. So if you're interested, please do look for details. We talked about how to keep the council on a sustainable financial footing after decades of cuts by aiming to make the digital department pay for itself and run more efficiently by switching to online services for the citizens, by allowing residents to do more things themselves. We talked about how we can help with funding by having elastic scale in the cloud, by reducing contract costs and by having more efficient office work. We talked about avoiding show-off technology like unnecessary AI. We talked about how to improve the lives of people in Greenwich by having empathy. And we talked about how Kit's empathy has actually led to her crying at work, but how that also brings her closer to the people that she's serving. We talked about improving services. We talked about digital inclusion and accessibility for all. We talked about doing one thing at a time. And we talked about the fact that Kit lives in Greenwich means that she really cares about her local community. And finally, we talked about how you write a digital strategy by using evidence-based iteration. Because MedTech specializes in working with the public sector, we really care about making the world a better place. So every episode, we're going to have suggestions on how to make life better. And for this episode, that suggestion has already come from Kit, which is to donate to your local food bank. Now more than ever, people are really struggling to put food on the table and you can really make a difference. Every other episode, this last short segment will be devoted to Hack of the Month, where one of my colleagues and in the future our listeners too will share a life or a work hack. This episode, our top tip comes from Tess Barnes, who's a senior engineer here at Made Tech. Hello. One of my tips is to colour code your goal activities. All of us have one or many goals that we want to achieve. And if, like me, you like to work on your goals in parallel, it can be tricky to balance where you place your effort. I keep my goals and goal-related activities written up on Trello, but any card system works and you can even use post-it notes. I choose activities to work towards a goal and choose a colour for them to match their associated goal. The colour coding makes it really easy to see where my progress is and helps to show if one goal is more dominant than another. This might be purposeful or it might have unexpectedly drifted into dominance. I can check in to see if there's a goal with very few activities and that might be because I'm stuck on defining it and I need to give it some more thought. Or perhaps it's because it's really close to being achieved and that's pretty exciting. It's a really simple tip just to colour code things, but I find it really useful. And that's the end of another episode. You can find me on Twitter at Claire Sudbury, which might not be spelt the way that you think. There's no I in Claire and Sudbury is spelt the same way as surgery with E-R-Y at the end. You can find the podcast on Twitter at Making Tech Bet 2. That's Making T-E-C-H-B-E-T.
ATT2. Do come and say hello, give us your feedback, give us any contributions you have for future episodes or just have a chat with us. Thank you to Rose for editing and thank you to Richard Murray for the music. You'll find a link in the description. Also in the description is a link for subscribing for extra content. We'll be releasing new episodes every fortnight. Thank you for listening and goodbye.